Coming up today, big tech competition and why we need to rethink fish as food. listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host for the week, Vicky Turk, and joining me today are Matt Reynolds. Hello. Matt Burgess. Hello. And Jan Volpicelli. Hello. This was the week when an erupting volcano caused the evacuation of thousands of people on the island of La Palma in the Canary Islands. The Cumbre Vieja volcano eruption has caused earthquakes and lava has burned through homes, with concerns it could cause further destruction when it reaches the sea. It was also the week when Lithuania's defence ministry said people should throw away their Chinese smartphones. The country's National Cyber Security Centre claims it found a Xiaomi phone with built-in censorship tools while another Huawei model had security flaws. And it was finally the week when the World Health Organization dramatically reduced its recommendations for maximum safe levels of key pollutants. The WHO halved the recommended maximum exposure to these tiny particles called PM2.5s and reduced by 25% the limit on exposure to another slightly bigger particle called PM2.5. 10. These changes mean that the UK's legal limits for the most harmful pollutants are now four times the maximum levels recommended by the WHO. So these pollutants, the PM 2.5s and PM 10s, those are the kind of things that you might get um, from traffic emissions and that sort of thing. Is that it? Yeah, exactly. It's traffic emissions. It's you know perhaps from uh, you know uh, burning wood or even stuff like. Um, tires when you break on the road it kind of releases little little particles that are very hard to see so basically if you live in a city in particular it's really really difficult to get away from these pollutants and we now know that they're associated with a really high burden of illness and death and that's the reason why the WHO has said actually what we thought before we need to really lower this limit and we think if we can lower this limit then we could save a lot of lives. And lowering that limit is the thing that uh, people are going to struggle with, especially, as you say, with places like London, where the limits are already, um, you know, massively over what, what they're supposed to be. On to our interesting facts this week. Matt Burgess, you've got an interesting fact for us. Go on. Well, I wouldn't say it's that interesting, but I do definitely have a fact that I learned this week. Uh, I learned that it's the world's oldest identical twins are 107. Um, the Japanese sisters uh, were born in uh, November 1913 um, and are still in touch, but they now sadly live over 300 kilometres apart, so aren't as um, close as they were when they were growing up. 107 years old. I wonder what their secret is. I learned an interesting sort of um, after effect of the pandemic, which you might not have predicted, and that's that people are falling off escalators because of COVID-19. The Evening Standard reports that there's been a spike in accidents on the London Underground Network, which has been attributed to people being reluctant to hold the handrail for fear of catching COVID, as well as perhaps, you know, intoxicated people celebrating a little bit too much after lockdowns lifted. There have actually been some studies done on the London Underground and uh, researchers found that there was not evidence of uh, COVID kind of hanging around on places like escalator handrails. So, you know, do be careful. Don't risk a fall. Don't become one of those statistics. 
Let us know if you've observed any strange knock-on effects of pandemic-related behaviour. Podcast at wired.co.uk is the usual address. We love to hear your feedback on any of our stories and facts each week. Now, our first big story this week is about big tech and regulation. I promise it is actually interesting. Matt, take it away. Yeah, so... Over the last few years, we have seen uh, regulators and anti-competition bodies uh, start to take a lot more action against big tech firms, uh, particularly on these types of competition issues and alleged abuses of their dominant positions. Um, So the EU has fined Google billions in free cases relating to search and Android, and there are currently multiple US lawsuits open against Google. In other countries, regulators uh, at a national level are looking at how Facebook, Apple and others behave. Um, And the rise in antitrust actions threatens to change how big tech firms work with uh, with, uh, declarations and rulings that they need to change parts of their business model. And and Jan, this week you've been reporting uh, that Microsoft is preparing itself for a new regulatory battle as well. Indeed. I mean, what I've been doing, essentially, I've been following pretty closely the UK government consultation regarding the DMU, which is the digital markets unit, which will be a new body which will be in charge of new rules and new enforcement in the field of digital competition. And one sort of um, interesting fact I've been hearing from people familiar with the ongoing consultation is that a lot of startups and entrepreneurs and trade bodies talking with the government uh, regarding these new uh, rules for digital competition are bringing up Microsoft, uh, and that uh, as, a, as a potential point of concern, as a company whose behavior concern, concerns them or worries them in many regards. Uh, and so what we expect to see from the DMU is possibly a renewed focus on the business-to-business, the B2B technology companies such as Microsoft, as opposed to the B2C sector. Uh, we over the past few years, I say over almost the past decade, uh, antitrust and competition regulation and enforcement have been mostly focused on companies such as Facebook or Amazon, which are um, customer facing. Uh, And they tend to be the more flashy and headline grabbing cases. But now, possibly, possibly, there are signs both in the UK and also in Brussels, in the EU, uh, the focus might shift back to the big enterprise software vendors. Um, We're going to see what the consultation uh, results say when they come up um, on October 1st. We are going to see what the reactions are going to be when shortly thereafter Microsoft releases its new operating uh, operating system, um, Windows 11. We know very well that Microsoft might be aware uh, that there is uh, more regulatory action coming its way because a couple of months ago, Axios reported that they are investing into a 20% increase to its legal team. Yeah, there are these two sort of big moments that are happening that you sort of mentioned there. That's in the UK, the conclusion of the DMU's consultation and also the launch of Microsoft Windows 11, which is linked to some of the accusations against Microsoft. So what are the uh, companies and people that you've been speaking to uh, accusing Microsoft of in these cases? Right, yeah. Uh, it really depends on what, what actors we're talking about here, right? So the companies uh, 
there are some companies that are mostly worried about how Microsoft is trying or has been trying, they say, allegedly, to parlay its dominance in the kind of uh, sector of enterprise software, so the office suit, I'd say, uh, into an advantage in the cloud sector. Uh, so people have been uh, grousing and griping about how uh, business clients, business customers of Microsoft are, are being offered discounts or additional features for you if they also use, apart from the Office suite, also uh, stuff like um, Azure, Microsoft Azure, which is the, the cloud service, the cloud service provider um, linked to Microsoft, owned by Microsoft. And also other people are pretty annoyed that uh, it is a bit harder to use uh, Microsoft software. Again, we're mostly talking about the Office Suite uh, on other cloud providers. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, but the most sort of persistent kind of complaints that seem to be happening at the level of the UK consultation coming from startups are essentially about the idea that Microsoft is still engaging, would be allegedly, according to these companies, <laughs> engaging in uh, the age-old practice of bundling, which means uh, incorporating uh, certain features in its products in a way that competes in an in, in a, in a allegedly anti-competitive way with other companies. Uh, products. Uh, so I, I suppose that the most um, high-profile case in this regard is the one which has been brought forward by Slack, actually in Brussels, before the EU Commission. So what Slack has been alleging is that Microsoft uh, is bundling, is tying uh, its Teams um, product, its Teams application, which is a very similar uh, application to Slack. It's a team communication uh, platform. Uh, it's bundling it together uh, with its office suite. Uh, and Slack says that, in, a, in, in essence, Microsoft is pig piggybacking on the popularity of the suite, uh, the office suite, in order to push uh, teams. Uh, so that's essentially the alleged anti-competitive conduct. Of course, uh, not everyone agrees. Microsoft, Microsoft certainly does not agree. Yeah, and those uh, that type of bundling is something that we have seen discussed in the past before. And as you say, that, that case, uh, particularly in the EU Commission, um, has been presented by Slack and uh, they're very much sort of trying to move that ahead. But at this stage, obviously, a lot of these things are unproven and they are alleged incidents. But what does, what does Microsoft say to these sort of claims? So Microsoft didn't really comment on the, uh, startups, uh, the startups claims, also because they weren't really public. They were more sort of behind closed doors. Uh, I, I was given a kind of uh, glimpse of them, but um, about the bundling of certain features in its products that compete with startups' uh, products. Uh, on Slack, though, it did comment. And uh, Microsoft's line is very clearly that they do not think, first of all, that Teams is uh, the same as Slack. And also they think that Teams is just a better product than Slack's because it integrates, they say, uh, video calling features in a way that is more popular with users. So, yeah, they just dismiss it. 
Yeah, and obviously that's going to play out over a few months and years and stuff like that. But Microsoft is, as a company, is definitely not unfamiliar with antitrust issues. We were talking about bundling a little bit there and sort of back in the early 2000s, Microsoft lost uh, some very high profile antitrust cases against the US government around it, essentially pushing Internet Explorer on people and making sure that they use that alongside Windows. And the outcome of that case was that it couldn't, uh, it had to give consumers and people uh, and other uh, other companies more choice and more competition essentially mm-hmm. um and so that's obviously a very well-known instance and microsoft will be probably very aware of that when it's receiving these types of complaints but as we we're saying at the top of of this there's been a lot of sort of antitrust action mostly focusing on um on consumer products and consumer facing companies um so do you have any thoughts on i guess why microsoft has been sort of virtually absent from the antitrust conversations for the last decade really well, I mean, my, there are several hypotheses there. Uh, one is simply that Microsoft has been very successful at restyling its image a bit. I mean, a new CEO appointed in 2014. Uh, Bill Gates stepped back, and Bill Gates was associated with a more, more kind of buccaneering period of Microsoft um, expansion. Uh, but also, as you said, most regulatory action has been focusing on companies that the people, like the citizenry, knows, uh, such as Facebook or Amazon, and those tend to be also companies whose actions are much more visible. So the B2B uh, sector uh, where Microsoft operates is less immediately visible, it's less immediately um, evident whether there's something there that is not uh totally compliant with rules uh, also because there isn't really an app store is a kind of uh, internal uh, subscription only kind of uh, store if you wish it's not really a store so it, it's just very much harder to pass and yeah as i said it's also less uh, sexy if you wish as a kind of case to uh, investigate uh, the other thing is that from what I understood, speaking with people familiar with the DMU consultation, a lot of startups just don't don't want to anger Microsoft. So uh, there seems to be a kind of caution around bringing up these allegations. Uh, that's essentially, I suppose these are some possible reasons, uh, or might just be that there's nothing to these allegations. Yeah, that, that definitely could be it. But Microsoft, as you say, has sort of reinvented itself over recent years to be more of a service-related company. It's focused a lot on the cloud, a lot on AI and things like that, whereas obviously Windows is still one of its biggest products, but uh, it's definitely moved away from uh, from some of that in, in the other areas that it focuses on and has pretty much successfully reinvented itself and avoided a lot of the sort of big criticisms around uh, around privacy and bundling and all of these things that have other companies have faced in recent years. So so what do you reckon uh, is going to be next for Microsoft in this particular story? And what are we going to see folk, uh, unfold over the next uh, few weeks, really? So, yeah, as I said, I would probably wait for whatever comes out of the consultation uh, in the UK, the DMU consultation. Uh Let's see whether this kind of uh, back, uh, like background, on background complaints have made it into any consultation finding. Um, also, as I said, Windows 11 is out and uh, apparently is going to be built all around Teams. Teams is going to become the center of the Windows <laughs> ecosystem. So I wonder what 
uh, Zlack's reaction will be. I, I, I would imagine to be apoplectic. Um, what else? There are a couple of. Um, there is one court case uh, in the UK uh, to be heard in March 2022, brought forward by a UK company called Value Licensing. It, it's, it's a bit of a different kind of case. It's essentially about how Value Licensing alleges that uh, Microsoft is trying to um, kill, in a way, the second hand license market and forcing all the uh, former owners of those licenses on the cloud by giving heavy discounts to these clients if they uh, renounce to resell those licenses. So essentially the licenses used to flood the market. There was a florid second-hand license market and now according to value licensing, it's an allegation, uh, that's not happening anymore because of Microsoft's uh, discounts. Uh, finally, yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on whatever goes on in Brussels, right? The Digital Markets Act is going to possibly deal with some of these issues. Uh, I'm not just making it up, but there is a name check on Microsoft is one of the in, in one of the documents uh, that the Commission released regarding the DMA, in which uh, it really focused on Microsoft. Uh, uh, dealing about cloud services and bundling. Uh, so there might be something there. But, or, I mean, we don't know. Maybe Microsoft will be, I, I suppose Microsoft will be, be well prepared to deal with that. That's it. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about these issues in time over the coming weeks and also years. These things, you know, do tend to drag on a lot sometimes, don't they? Thanks for joining us, Jan, and giving us the, uh, the redux of what's going on in this space at the moment. You're welcome. On to our second story, something entirely different. We know that large quantities of red meat are bad for our health and that beef and lamb have the largest carbon emissions of any major food. One potential alternative is fish. Matt, you've just published our latest wide guide, The Future of Food, which looks at how we're going to be able to feed a growing population without destroying the planet. And fish may play a role in this. Yeah, that's right. So I don't think this will come as a surprise to listeners that have been paying much attention at all to the you know climate crisis over the last few years that one of these key messages around the climate and our diets is that we really really need to eat less red meat and we're thinking about beef and lamb in particular so if we just take beef it has many many times the emissions of other meats around 100 kilos of co2 emissions per kilo of product and way way more than plant-based protein if you look at like a pea or a legume that might just have one kilogram of emissions per kilogram of product. So this leaves us with a question, really. If we're not going to get our animal protein from beef or lamb, where else can we turn? And obviously, to some people, the answer is obvious. It's, well, eat plant-based protein instead. But I think a lot of people still want to look for animals for their source of protein. And one commonly posed solution is, well, let's eat a healthier lower emission source of protein. And that's fish. 
And this makes a whole bunch of sense. Um, some people argue that our oceans are actually pretty underutilised when it comes to making food. So oceans cover around 71% of the planet's surface, but at present they only provide us with about 2% of our total food and around 15% of all the animal protein consumed by humans. So if you're thinking about how we utilise the resources of the earth in terms of creating our food, around half of all habitable land is used by agriculture. So we've done loads and loads and loads for converting the land to agriculture. A lot of that's been really damaging. It's a bad thing. It's been a bad thing. But we haven't really utilised the oceans to anywhere near that extent. And that's part of the reason why you know, a lot of people are looking to fish as a solution. So in 2019, there's this big study uh, from this group called the Eat Lancet Commission, and they set out to answer this big question, which was, well, what would the best diet look like for both our health and the environment? And really, you know, their major recommendations, as well as, you know, increasing the fruit and veg and, and increasing the amount of legumes and, and um, you know, beans that people are eating, they said we need to massively reduce the red meat consumption and we should also be increasing the amount of seafood that we're eating it was actually the only increase of meat was was seafood and this leads us to a bit of a problem because if we all followed that recommended diet that diet that's you know healthy for us and healthy for the planet we'd need to more than double the current levels of fish production and presumably that would lead to quite a problem with overfishing we already hear a lot about various fish species being overfished do we think our oceans can sustain a doubling in fishing basically no so having said all that about how the oceans are untapped i think it's pretty clear that the way we've been using the oceans over the last well certainly the last 100 years last 150 years is not sustainable at all so i think a lot of people will be really familiar that a whole bunch of fish species have already been fished to their limits and Part of that is really because we eat relatively few species of fish globally. If you think about um, all the kind of um, biodiversity there is in the ocean, we actually only really eat a very small fraction of those fish. And about 60% of those widely eaten fish species are already fished at their maximally sustainable limit. So that means if we fish them anymore, their um, breeding populations would, would dwindle so much that we essentially you know, wouldn't have enough fish to sustain next year's harvest or the harvest after that. And you can see this play out in a whole bunch of places. You know, if you look at the US, they used to have loads of Atlantic salmon. Um, almost every coastal river north of the Hudson in New York had its own population of Atlantic salmon. And now they are super rare. You know, there's only a handful of rivers in Maine where wild salmon are still there. You know, we see the same thing with Pacific bluefin tuna. I think in 2010, they reached something like 10% of their 1952 breeding population. So they're hugely depleted. Again, a very, very widely uh, fished fish. In 2015, the World Wildlife Fund basically released a report and it said, you know, overfishing, habitat destruction and climate change had caused fish populations to fall by nearly half between 1970 and 2012. So really, this all leads us to this conclusion that we can't sustain this level of fish production and certainly can't sustain future level of fish production simply by catching fish from the wild. So we need to eat more fish, but we can't fish more fish. That sounds like quite a predicament. But catching fish from the wild isn't the only way that it makes its way onto our plates, right? Is there an alternative solution? 
Yeah, there is. There's a, a, a huge alternative to wild-caught fishing. And in fact, in the last few decades alone, the way we produce fish has completely changed. And actually, if you think about it, the fact that we source a lot of our fish from the ocean is a bit weird, really. We don't tend to gather animals from the wild in any other circumstance. Obviously, at a very small scale, that's done, but we don't get beef in that way. We don't take wild cows or wild buffalo and, and kill them and eat them. All of those animals are intensively farmed. And the same thing has happened um, in the fish industry. So since the late 1980s, the aquaculture industry has boomed. And basically, aquaculture means fish farming. And usually it's done in large circular cages. Sometimes they're made from steel, sometimes they're made from plastic. And these are called net pens. And they're basically anchored to the ocean floor, sometimes in freshwater lakes. Um, and it's usually close to the shoreline. So basically, you keep all these fish in a cage, a pretty big cage, and you, you farm them close to the shore. In 2013, for the first time, the volume of seafood produced in this way, produced through agriculture, overtook wild capture. And since then, the gap has continued to grow. So while the amount of wild caught fish has kind of plateaued since the mid 1990s, in that same time span since the 1990s, the amount of farmed fish has tripled. So now if you get salmon, if you go to Tesco and buy salmon in the UK, it's almost definite that that salmon would have been grown in a net pen in Scotland. The same is true for lots and lots of um, popular fish and, and uh, you know, other types of seafood as well. You know, a lot of our fish now comes from fish farming. But of course, if anyone's familiar with the history of factory farming and how we took animals from the wild, obviously we domesticated them over a very long period of time and then we intensified that process, we realised that came with a whole bunch of problems that we're basically still dealing with today. And we're starting to see some of those same problems with fish farming. So in some parts of the world, mangrove forests are cleared for shrimp farms. That's a, one reason why um, shrimp has actually a very high carbon footprint for for fish, I think it's you know, it's bigger than something like chicken. It has a pretty high carbon footprint, and that's because a lot of the time shrimp farms um, fill in where there used to be mangrove forests, and mangrove forests are really good at sucking up CO two. And there are other problems as well. We know that net pens are a bit of a breeding ground for diseases and pests. If you cram hundreds of thousands of fish um, in the same space, it makes it very easy for pests and for diseases to you know go between those fish and sometimes leak out into wild populations. And this happens all the time, in fact. You know, in 2012, salmon farms in Scotland lost nearly 10% of their total production to a disease. Um, it was kind of a gill disease that killed 8.5 million fish. And there's also, specifically in the salmon industry, there's a really huge problem with this, this thing called sea lice. So there's, there's these little kind of lice that get onto fish and on their scales and in their gills. And basically, suck at them and kind of remove their scales and it's it's basically an infection that, that ruins the fish and, and can kill the fish and this costs the salmon industry around 400 million dollars a year and the problem is if you get a bunch of salmon together sea lice are going to go absolutely wild it's a bit like head lice in a primary school right except no one's rubbing shampoo and yeah, there's nothing we can do to really stop it although there's some kind of some people try bathing fish in certain chemicals and there's kind of lasers to shoot these sea lice. But it's a really, really big problem. And in fact, a lot of countries are saying, well, look, we're so concerned about the environmental um, consequences of fish farming that we don't really want it to happen anymore. So in 2019, Denmark's environment minister 
um, deemed offshore aquaculture so risky that she called a halt to all new fish farms in the area and stopped existing fish farms from expanding. And that's quite a big deal, actually, because in Denmark, um, fish farming is a really, really big industry. But she basically said, look, we just don't, we can't allow this to expand because we just don't know the effect this is having on the environment. So overfishing is a big problem, but fish farming also seems to have a lot of drawbacks. What do we do from there? Yeah, we're in a little bit of a situation here because we know, as you said, we know that taking fish out of the the ocean at the scale we want to do it, that's not sustainable. We're also thinking, well, having these fish farms, well, that's causing pollution, it's causing these diseases, that's causing lots of problems. Um, Some people are coming up with some pretty interesting reimaginings of what fish farming might look like and one of those is in a a site that is a former tomato field it's just south of miami i think it's about 20 or 30 kilometers south of miami and there there's an indoor fish farm that holds hundreds of thousands of atlantic salmon so pretty much the same type of salmon that will be uh, being farmed right now off the scottish coast and these salmon have a pretty unusual life so they're born indoors they die indoors, they spend their lives cycling between a series of these massive circular tanks that hold more than 60 million litres of water altogether. And some of these are filled with fresh water to mimic rivers, while others contain seawater, because salmon are quite fussy. They live part of their life in, in rivers, they live part of their life in the ocean. So they like both sources of water. This farm is being run by a company called Atlantic Sapphire, And they're a big producer of salmon and they're basically convinced that the future of farming salmon is on the land. If you can grow fish in tightly controlled environments, you can avoid the problem of sea lice and you can optimise their conditions so they grow as quickly as possible. And basically how their system works is they buy in salmon eggs and they keep them in these cool, dark conditions until they hatch and they transfer them to a freshwater tank until they reach a certain time, uh, reach a certain weight. And after that, these the, the farm technicians basically simulate winter by turning down the lights for most of the day. So, you know, the lights are only on for, you know, six or whatever, five or six hours of the day. And then this kind of prompts the fish to, to grow and go through their natural life cycle. And all the while they're being moved from a freshwater tank into a saltwater tank and they, they pass through about 10 different tanks in their lifetime. And after 20 months, which is actually pretty quick for a salmon to grow, they don't grow that quickly in the wild, these fully grown fish are basically piped from their last tank into this processing facility where they're stunned, they're gutted, they're they're graded for quality, and then they're loaded into trucks. And the idea is, is rather than taking salmon from Norway or from Finland or from Scotland and shipping that to the USA or you know perhaps to other parts of the world to to China which is a you know really really big market for salmon they're producing all the salmon basically at the same point at which this salmon will be consumed so you've really shortened that that pathway and all the while the fish never get a single glimpse of the outside world so it's a very different type of life for these salmon yeah it's not quite what you imagine when you think of a fish farm today it all sounds you know very high tech and you know clean but it's not without its own problems as well right yeah exactly i mean if you think about it we're doing something pretty difficult here salmon you know live in the ocean and they live in in um fresh water as well and the good thing about aquaculture about net pens is well you've essentially cordoned off a bit of the ocean so your animals can live more or less in their natural habitat what you've got to do if you're 
indoor salmon farming is you've got to recreate recreate that natural habitat on the land so you've got to circulate the water in the tanks to keep the fish swimming against the current because that's how salmon um you know get so get so muscly because they're basically swimming against the current all the time you've got to oxygenate that water so the fish can breathe and you've got to filter out that water to stop it becoming toxic And if something goes wrong, maybe you've got a faulty pump, you know, that blocks up, or you've got a dodgy sensor, you have a disaster on your hands, really, because you've got all these fish together. And in February 2020, this exact thing happened. So Atlantic Sapphire has another smaller plant um, in Denmark, and essentially unusually high nitrogen levels killed off around 200,000 salmon. You know, huge problem. Basically, all these salmon, you know, die in one go because these conditions weren't right. And then four months later, the company was first uh, was forced to harvest around two hundred thousand salmon early from this Miami plant um, because the construction work near a tank basically distressed the fish, and they thought, okay, these fish aren't going to go to the full size; they can't make it. And so. Lots of people say, well, look, when you've got losses like this and you've got to maintain all these environments, it's just a super costly way of producing fish. And that's part of the reason why a lot of these um, early plants are salmon, because salmon has a very high value. So it's a, you know, it's the best model fish to, to try this new type of technique with. But despite these risks... You know, this this farm just south of Miami is is just one of about 20 different land-based fish farms currently being built, or, you know, a bunch of different places in the world. So it's a an idea that's really catching on, although it's not proven yet. People are not necessarily convinced that this is going to become the most cost-efficient way of uh, making salmon, farming salmon. So based on all the research that you've done for this book, I know you've looked into this really in depth. What what do you think? Is this the future? Yeah, it's a really difficult question. I think that the answer is, is that the future will probably require a mix of lo- lots of different techniques of which indoor or land-based fish farming might be one of them. I think one thing is clear, we probably will be eating a lot more fish in the future, or at least we probably should be eating a lot more um fish in the future but there are lots of different solutions that you can have while farming fish so you could farm fish that we don't eat so often in the west you know um you can farm fish that might you know grow better in certain environments and if we just change our appetite slightly these might be fish that are more environmentally friendly to farm and you know grow more quickly other things you can do is you can farm fish alongside seaweed or mussels and other bivalves and these have the added benefit that they basically filter polluted water so if you grow fish alongside mussels well actually all that fish waste that these fish produce that's good food for those mussels and then you can farm the mussels as well and it means that you need to spend less time rotating these net pens at the moment most companies they farm an area for maybe a year or maybe a couple of years and then they have to leave that area and move the net pen somewhere else while that area recovers because of all the you know the runoff and the pollution that it creates. There's a really company, a really interesting fish farmer, a guy called Josh Goldman, who's doing this um, farming of fish called barramundi in, in Vietnam in this way, in this kind of mixed aquaculture. And then you know another thing we can do is just lower the environmental impact of fish by changing what we feed them. So all of those salmon we talked about, they all need feeding, and at the moment about 12% of all wild-caught fish goes towards feeding farmed fish. So if your fish is carnivorous, well, you need a source of fish to feed them, and that fish comes out of the ocean. So you've got this weird 
thing where we take fish out of the ocean only to feed them to fish somewhere else in the world. And one potential solution for that might be getting fish out of the supply chain. There's a company uh, in France and that's producing fish meal made out of mealworms. So I think that it's quite exciting. There's lots of different solutions that you can see that might reduce the emissions. And I think that certainly makes fish a really appealing alternative to something like beef or something something like lamb, where reducing those emissions by a really, really vast amount, which is what would be required, is pretty difficult. I think you've got maybe a bit more of a realistic route to doing that with fish farming. Great. And how about you, Matt? Because you choose not to eat fish at the moment, right? Would, would progress on any of those techniques that you've just talked about change your mind personally? So I don't eat fish more for animal welfare reasons rather than um, environmental reasons. So I, it wouldn't change my mind on those. And actually, there's this slightly weird problem when it comes to um, more environmentally friendly animals is that you get a lot more meat out of one cow. So it's worse for the environment to grow one cow, cow but it's worse for the animal welfare to grow 20 or 200 fish, right? Because that's 200 fish that might have quite bad lives as opposed to one cow that might have quite bad lives. So there's this like weird irony that sometimes the most environmentally friendly thing is not necessarily the most the best thing from a kind of animal welfare point of view. But certainly, you know, there's lots of companies that are also working on um, cell-based fish. So basically, you know, growing fish cells in, in the lab in the same way that people have done with, with beef and, and pork and other animals. And I'd be, I'd be well up for that. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't think I would eat fish grown in this way. Although, I, you know, I certainly can see why a lot of people do it. And I think it makes sense from an environmental perspective, for sure. What about you guys, Matt and Jan? Do you ever take sort of the environment into consideration when you're thinking of your own diets? Have you made any changes specifically to try and be more environmentally friendly in what you eat? Uh, I'm pescatarian, so I never thought about the whole number of fish killed to number of cows killed uh, arithmetic there. Maybe I should have, but so far I've been snarfing up fish like crazy. Uh, but mostly, paradoxically, for animal welfare reasons, I, I just find mammals <laughs> most... Uh, like, I, I like mammals more than fish, so I, I couldn't bring myself to eat mammals, or reptiles for that reason, for that matter, or birds. And I thought, well, yeah, fish. Uh, I, I realize that it's not a philosophical, philosophically sound position, but that's essentially my position right now. What about you, Matt? Is it something you think about? Uh, I don't think I've thought about eating reptiles before. Uh, <laughs> but um, I, I mean, I'm mostly, um, I mostly don't eat meat and fish. I'm not vegetarian or anything like that, but largely just don't eat them because my partner is. And um, I think that, like, yeah, I don't really think about it too much just because I don't uh, eat those things very often anyway. Um, but yeah, obviously do think that uh, I am a bit conscious when I do buy fish and things like that about where it's where it's coming from and, and those sources. So I think that um, for me, yeah, it is something that's in mind, but I also just don't um, don't eat much of those either of those sources. So um, yeah, not too not too much in the front of my mind. And if you want to hear more about how our diets may change or may have to change in the future to feed a, a growing population without exacerbating climate change, then do pick up a copy of Matt's book. It's just out this week, The Future of Food. 
you can find it in all good bookstores um, or go to the wired.co.uk website and you can read an extract there which has some more information about how fish in particular could be part of that puzzle and let us know if you've made any dietary choices based on environmental consideration what do you think we should be eating more of less of is there anything that you think you can do just to play your small role in trying to build a greener future podcast at wired.co.uk and we've got some feedback from one of our previous episode matt lily wrote in with uh, some more information about vaccine passports in france which we were discussing last week yeah so lily said that they're surprised that we didn't consider free aspects of the vaccine passport story in france uh they said and the points that they raise are that um uh, they say we didn't consider the vaccine passport becoming obligatory for 18, 12 to 18 year olds. Uh, also that the uh, French system of health and tax uh, are and, and general government functions like that are more online uh, in France anyway. Um, and essentially they point out that that, um, that type of system is more efficient than the UK at the moment. Um, and it's the efficiency versus privacy debate that uh, feels very different in France than the UK. And they also add that thirdly, there's obviously a lot of cultural differences and more obligations, they say, on French residents when it comes to some health aspects uh, than others in the UK. Um, and they also point out and finally end their email on uh, saying thank you for the podcast, but uh, let's say they're also slowly getting used to our theme music. <laughs> I think we've had that, that theme music for a very long time, haven't we? So uh, it does take some getting used to. <laughs> Thanks for writing in, Lily. And we do love hearing from your emails. So do let us know if you've got any thoughts, musings, complaints, congratulations, whatever it is. Um, we like to hear from you. But for now, that's it from the Wired podcast. We'll be back next week. Bye. 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 